0: get ready to laugh out loud at the tribeca festival june 5th to june 16th in nyc experience hilarious talks comedy specials and feel-good films with your fan favorite comedians like hannah einbinder judd apatow neil patrick harris take Nataro, and more you have to be there get your tickets now at tribecafilm.com did you know the tribeca festival showcases more than just film and tv
1: worth it? I'm Rebecca Jennings, and I write about internet culture for Vox. And today, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. When I used to tell people that I'm a journalist who covers TikTok, most of the time they reacted with something like, what? But that changed during the pandemic. Now the reactions are more like, Oh my God, have you seen this guy? Or I'm obsessed with this trend. Or I can't get that one song out of my head. The people in my life who weren't super online before were spending a lot more time on the internet and suddenly started caring about influencer drama and subcultures like cottagecore. More people on social media has also meant that there's more famous people right now than ever in history. People who started a TikTok account with zero followers and went viral overnight or people who quit their jobs to drive Ubers and make podcasts or YouTube videos. What we're talking about here is widely known as the creator economy, which has been heralded by many people as the bold, bright future of work, and others as a pyramid scheme destined to make a few people extremely rich and leave everyone else fighting for scraps of money and attention. No one covers this world like Taylor Lorenz, a tech reporter at The New York Times, who's amassed so much of a following over the past few years that she could be considered an influencer herself. She's currently working on a book about the past and future of the creator economy. What I appreciate so much about Taylor's coverage is how she avoids the moral panicking and hyperbole of the stereotypical older reporter writing about, you know, something horrible that the teens are supposedly doing online. She doesn't look at the studies that tell us how so many kids today say they want to grow up and be influencers as evidence for some coming apocalypse, but rather as a predictable response to an extremely bizarre and unfair social system. But with so many more people trying to play the Internet fame lottery, what many are finding is that even if you win, there's no jackpot at the end. They're finding themselves burnt out and stressed, constantly working and never logging off. So what we're here to talk about today is, is the creator economy worth it? Taylor, thank you so much for being here today. I am super psyched to chat. And first off, I just want to ask you, what the hell is a
0: creator? (laughs) <laughs> well, a creator, sometimes also called influencers, I would define as anyone who sort of builds a business on the internet around a certain following. They're essentially little mini media companies that operate on social platforms. So you could think of a YouTuber, a Twitch streamer, a Substack writer, anyone that's sort of working in this internet mediated, I guess, media work.
1: And when we're talking about the creator economy, we're
0: talking about? The creator economy is essentially just a way to talk about all of these different people that are building businesses and mini media empires sort of on the backs of these large tech platforms like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Twitch, etc.,
1: and it seems like there's just so many more people describing themselves as influencers or creators than there was like just a few years ago, which I know your book that hasn't come out yet is touching on. How and where did this all begin? What are the seeds of this world?
0: Well, you're exactly right. There's, according to one recent report by the venture firm Signal Fire, over 50 million people now consider themselves creators, which is a huge number compared to even just a couple years ago. I would say this industry, if you want to think of it as a broad industry, really started to emerge around a decade ago, maybe in the late aughts, you saw this broader disruption in media, right? So um, instead of getting news and information and entertainment from traditional sources, you had more people turning to these online platforms at the time YouTube was emerging. And so you had that first generation of YouTubers. Um, when Instagram come along, you had people building audiences on that and so on and so forth. Nowadays, I think people aren't really multi-platform. All of these creators really understand the value of being on many platforms. So the word creator, which actually a, a team within YouTube developed in 2011, that term, sort of the way it applies as we currently think of it, creator's is a good name for all of these different types of people that aren't necessarily platform specific. So whereas back in 2009, for instance, you would refer to somebody as a YouTuber or a vlogger. And then maybe you knew people that were Instagram stars or Viners. Nowadays, they're just creators and they sort of hop across whatever platform they want.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of the kids that I talk to, like they're so comfortable calling themselves a content creator, whereas like none of them would describe themselves as an influencer because that's like, weird. You can't say that about yourself, but (laughs) it's funny. Like, what is the draw of that? Yeah.
0: Well, you know, it's funny. So, I mean, they're the exact same thing. Influencer was actually a term applied to online content creators in the mid-2010s when you saw this boom in marketing dollars coming towards the industry. So, the concept of influencer marketing, the word influencer has existed for decades in the marketing world, and it sort of became synonymous with the phrase like online creator because the word creator was still so synonymous with YouTube and you didn't have these multi-platform people. So back in 2015, 2016, 2017, when all of these advertisers really rushed in and started pouring ad money in, the term influencer was popularized mostly by marketers. Tech companies have always used the term creator. That's why like Instagram has always had a creator partnerships team. YouTube obviously came up with the word in the way that we understand it now. And now that we're seeing this flip of the tech industry having more influence than the marketing industry and the online creator space, I think that's the reason it's like flipped back. Oh, that's so interesting. Also, I think you're right. Like people do consider, I think also because the first big wave of content creators were primarily women, I think the word influencer does have like a gendered connotation to it. And I don't know, it's seen as a little cringy.
1: But. Right. It's It reminds me of like the way that people called each other hipsters in like the 2000s, but no one would say that about themselves. <laughs> Like, you can't be like, I'm a hipster.
0: Oh my God, I literally went as a hipster for Halloween in 2008. Incredible. <laughs> so incredible. You're ahead of your time. <laughs> yeah, but it was like, I totally agree. I mean, hipster like influencers sort of, it was this term that was applied to people. But for young people, I mean, you're saying how young people don't hesitate to call themselves online creators. A lot of young people never hesitate to call themselves influencers. There definitely isn't as much of a stigma around that as there used to be as the years go on, I think people understand, hey, look, you can't really laugh at these people making millions of dollars
1: anymore. Right. And yeah, I mean, take us through how this becomes a job. How do you monetize having a big following?
0: Yeah, there's a million different ways to structure your business when you're an online creator. And it's really important to diversify your revenue streams. So, some people, you know, say you get a a modest following, right? On maybe you have a hundred thousand on Instagram, you've got fifty thousand on YouTube, something like that. Each platform has a different suite of monetization tools. So, for instance, on YouTube, you can plug right into Google AdSense, run some, you know, pre roll ads on your video and monetize that way. On Instagram, there's no button you can switch, right? With Instagram, where you can just turn on ads on your feed. So you have to negotiate those deals directly. And then nowadays, you see a lot more influencers and content creators, whatever you want to call them, uh, productizing themselves. So outside of these platforms, right? Developing merch businesses, developing other revenue streams, like bigger brand partnerships, maybe designing a sneaker with Nike or something, or doing meet and greets, or doing shout outs on Cameo, you know, Just the way that media companies, traditional media companies, monetize in a myriad of different ways. Creators also, each one has their own little mix.
1: Right. And I mean, like, you probably have seen this, but it seems like the whole idea of covering internet culture just completely exploded after the pandemic because everyone just suddenly had to realize like, oh, I have to pay attention to this now because my entire life is online. And like, I mean, how did the pandemic sort of affect the creator economy or or who and how many people were interested in being part of it?
0: I think the pandemic was this watershed moment for the online creator ecosystem. Really, I mean, I think the pandemic in general was an accelerant towards so many things. And especially when you think of that towards the creator world, all of a sudden you had millions of people spending way more time online and seeking entertainment and information online, you know, as a priority instead of. Through more traditional means. So I think it allowed these creators to capitalize on that, right? On capitalize on that attention. If you think about who was doing the best Instagram lives early on, you know, when we were all in lockdown, it wasn't traditional celebrities. It wasn't really media companies who didn't know how to use it. It was these content creators that this is their bread and butter. So people started paying attention. Or I think of, look at the rise of just chatting on Twitch, right? People used to really think of Twitch as this video game platform and it has been, of course, but these other categories that had always been there started to really pop off as people looked, you know, to Twitch for entertainment, for information, just to kill time, you know, while they were bored in their house. So I think it had just accelerated a lot of sort of this broader shift towards digital and shift towards this more distributed uh, media ecosystem that we live in now. And in terms of coverage, I mean, I think finally I'm sure you feel this too, traditional media companies started to realize, whoa, there's actually a really big audience and there's a big market for stuff. I think a lot of these traditional people that had maybe media execs or whatever that hadn't been online really started to see these shifts in person and it really started to resonate in a way that it hadn't previously
1: Totally. And it's so funny how many people have gone through the stages of becoming, like, famous online over the past year and a half. I mean, like, can you walk us through, you know, you go viral, you grow a following, however fast or slow that takes, what happens? (laughs)
0: Yeah. Well, with those millions of eyeballs and everyone sort of turning to their phones and computers during the pandemic, like you said, I think there's this whole wave of like pandemic celebrities kind of, of people that really capitalized on this moment. A lot of them were early Instagram live people or TikTokers. I I noticed most of those people popping off in like underdeveloped areas. YouTube, I mean, there weren't as many like new YouTubers last year because YouTube's been around and that ground has been tilled, I guess. But TikTok, I mean, TikTok is just in such a different place than it was when the pandemic started in terms of user base. And so I think there was just more white space there for people to grow. And then if you think of these different features on different platforms or subcategories, for instance, just chatting or Instagram Live, it's like these have always been there, but people are leveraging them in new or more creative ways or other creators that were maybe like doing their own thing, but weren't that big, were able to hop on a different feature or reels. Reels is another good example of this, right? Like hop on this new feature and really go to the moon.
1: Right. And so you did it, you made it, you went viral, you've grown a following. It probably starts with like a few DMs from brands being like, hey, we want to work with you. Like, hey, DM. And they'll probably start out pretty shady and then they'll get some more and more legit. And then you go to managers, right? Like tell us about like the mechanism behind this viral fame and how people sort of like squeeze fame out of
0: it. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's basically like you have to think of creators as equal part celebrity and entrepreneur. So in one sense, your fame is growing, right? Your audience is growing and you have to manage your public persona much in the way that a famous person would. And then on the back end, you have to grow your business like an entrepreneur. And often that means taking on a manager to essentially run business operations for you. Like you mentioned, Rebecca it usually starts with some weird, you know, DMs from like, Hey, do you want to post about, you know, the coldest water? Whatever. And maybe you do that for $20 and then you make a media kit, right? And you say, Hey, look at all these brand deals I've done. Then you can proactively reach out to brands. You get bigger and bigger brand deals. Maybe you launch a merch shop, you know, maybe you launch a candle line, you know, you can kind of do whatever. Um, Maybe you start getting tips from your streams, but you kind of grow that audience and and determine sort of where you want to take it, you know, and how you want to evolve your. I guess, business, right? If you think about it as starting a small business, there's no one blueprint for starting a small business, but people have those similar milestones.
1: Yeah. And one thing, I mean, we both cover this a lot, is the unglamorous side of being a creator and influencer. Like, what are a lot of misconceptions that people tend to have about internet fame?
0: Well, I think because most people still only primarily view creators through the lens of fame, they don't really understand the amount of work that goes into this type of career, which is an insane amount of work. It's so much harder than you think to essentially build a business around yourself or around an interest that you have. It's grueling. It's nonstop. None of these platforms will guarantee you anything i mean you could, even if you have the tightest relationship with Instagram, right they could launch a new feature or change your algorithm and you're you're out on the street so you really you have to be super nimble and you have to be super smart about how you grow your persona and and grow your business and monetize and and save and invest and all that stuff obviously too but burnout's a huge problem. I mean, nobody stays in this industry for that long, or if they do, they generally go behind the scenes. I think it's sort of similar to media and entertainment. You have that window where you can really push hard and you can really give it your all. But I mean, these people are working 24 seven and often they're underage. It's like a lot of people working for no benefits, no protections, right? There's that viral tweet, like, you know, back in the 1970s or 60s, like I'm going to work and I have a whole family and a house. And then Nowadays, like, my boss is an app and I owe it money. Um, (laughs) I feel like that just speaks to the experience of every creator, you know? They're working for these platforms. It's so funny because
1: as long as I've been doing this, whenever I interview, like, a creator or something, they always just want to talk about, like, I'm being shadow banned or like this platform is out to get me and I'm so scared of being shut down. Especially, I mean, these are two different issues, but it's like, especially sex workers that I talk to, they're like their entire livelihoods are based on having an Instagram following that they can then monetize somewhere else. The platforms just have so much power over creators that it becomes its own job to not only like live the life that you're doing or like, you know, be an expert in whatever you're an expert in, but also just like kind of hustling to keep up with the platforms. And I mean, like, how would you describe the difference between the gig economy and the creator economy?
0: I would say the creator economy is 10 times more volatile. I mean, Uber and these gig companies, yeah, they change some stuff and they have their own algorithms, but they're fundamentally like the core business is not going to change. I mean, if you think about something like Instagram, think of yourself being an Instagram creator in 2012 versus today. I mean, like you're holding on to this like big moving ship that's, sort of shifting shape beneath you and you have to stay afloat. And so it's just really hard to adapt yourself and adapt to these platforms and adapt your public persona to continue to resonate. It's like almost impossible, but it is extremely similar to gig work. I mean, there's so many similarities in terms of just the nature of employment, right? You are totally dependent on these platforms and their whims. A lot of people think of this job as a creator as oh, independent work. I'm my own boss, right? But you're not. Like Instagram is the boss. YouTube is the boss. You're you're trying to build a business on the internet, which is just, it's very volatile. I think mm-hmm. that's why you see a lot of creators moving towards more sustainable revenue streams like subscriptions and like merch businesses or anything with like recurring revenue or revenue that they can control, products that they're promoting where they don't mm-hmm. have to worry about losing a brand deal.
1: Right. And it's, it's so much of it is just like tying your entire identity to like what you do is is obviously, like, a recipe for just complete burnout and stress. And, like, I don't know. Have you seen anybody that's able to, like, manage those that well? Because I don't think I do.
0: No. I mean, frankly, to manage it well, I feel like you have to be a little bit out of your mind. I mean, like, look at the people that are, like, the most successful. It's, like, you have to be so mentally tough or just truly not give a care Like you just have to be like kind of an asshole, I think, in some ways, or you just have to be like heads down and really understand media and business. Like, it's very hard. It's very hard. Yeah, most people won't succeed. I mean, I'm sure Rebecca, you feel this way. Even in traditional media, it's hard. You know, and you have to picture too, especially these younger content creators. Not even younger, right? All of these content creators. I was seeing this one woman I follow recently. You know, she recently lost a pregnancy and is going through divorce. She's this lifestyle content creator. And it's like she's expected to open up about all of that to her followers just because she's a home design and fashion content creator. But, you know, she's let her fans peek into her house. And now that she's had tragedy, it's like people feel very entitled to you. The bond that people have with these content creators is 10 times deeper than anything they have with a traditional celebrity or athlete. So there's this expectation of, I guess, like response.
1: We'll be back with more of my conversation with Taylor Lorenz after a very quick break. One thing that I find interesting talking about, especially with, like, teenagers or people who, like, are still kind of figuring out themselves is— The joy that they feel about making videos or taking pictures, and then what happens when that becomes, like, a money hustle, it changes for them, you know? Like, we all sort of feel the weirdness of having to put our lives online, as long as you have, like, an Instagram or whatever, like, you know what that feels like, but what happens when you are tying that also to, like, the kind of money that you take home?
0: Yeah. And everything is so metrics based and so many of these metrics are public. You know, it's not like, Oh, you have a business and I'm not totally sure how your business is doing, but I trust it's doing well. It's like all of these numbers, you know, you get into a controversy, you lose 200,000 subscribers. That's a very clear one impact to your revenue and two, like, publicly, it makes this appearance of like, oh, you're failing. Your business is on the decline. Your brand is on the decline. So it can snowball. But it absolutely takes the joy out of it. I mean, anyone that works in a creative field knows that like, the more you do for money, the less fun it is. You know, Mm -hmm. it's very stressful. And you just have more people weighing in too. The bigger you get, the more you have managers, agents, brands, everyone wants a piece of you. Everyone wants to say what they think you should be.
1: I know, it's weird. I feel like one really good example of showing that was the Charlie D'Amelio show. Like, I found it strangely moving. Yes. No! I feel like it just gets more difficult every day.
0: They break up every single thing I do and make it, like, a negative thing. I literally got back from the gym and then they posted a video of just that 15-second clip and they're like, oh my God, she's so musty. I'm like, shut the... Yes, okay, but um, did you ever watch Chasing Cameron, the MagCon documentary? I think people see social media as a bunch of kids posting funny videos, but they don't really see the bigger business aspect of it. The honest truth is that everything is going to follow me at the end of the day. So the value is creating a channel. Watching all these kids with all their energy makes me realize, like, yo, I'm so tired dealing with all this MagCon drama, and when I do need a break and my body's telling me to, and I'm having an anxiety attack and someone's telling you keep going, and then you just keep pushing through it, eventually that's going to catch up to you. You know, I think that the reason that these influencers keep having the ability to, like, have a show or, or get attention and they want to call out how hard it is is because people really don't understand it. And, yeah, the Demilio show did a good job of showing the sadness and the hardship. But even then, it's like immediately it was turned into a meme. And I feel like people really don't have any sympathy for you, but which is it makes it even harder. I
1: know. Exactly. Nothing is as it seems online. Like, no one is 100 percent honest. And even if you are in the beginning, you won't be by the end of it. It, it changes people. We're always looking at ourselves because if someone was looking at us, only focusing on us, are we walking weird? Do I sound stupid? What am I saying? What does my hair look like? Is my makeup messed up? Does my outfit look good? When you add millions of people watching your every move, millions of people ready to tear you apart at every second, that's like constant terror. And I mean, another thing that we've obviously talked about, like how emotionally difficult it is, but it's also like the economic realities are really rough, sort of like the way the regular economy is. Like you basically have algorithms determining how much money certain people make. And obviously algorithms are can be racist and sexist and exploit all these things that humans have in their horrible minds. And and like the creator economy is so just like a pyramid of like all the money's at the top and there's a huge middle. And then like all the regular people at the bottom. I don't know, like, do you think there's a future for, like, the middle class of creators? Do you think, like, we're sort of destined to sort of keep repeating the same inequalities?
0: I think we are destined to keep repeating the same inequalities as long as the same men are in power in Silicon Valley. Like, I think if you really, you know, take it to the top and look at the disparities in this stuff, it's the same players. Look at, you know, who Andreessen Horowitz is funding and look at the disparities there, right? Like Andreessen Horowitz is, of course, the gigantic $19 billion Silicon Valley venture fund. I don't know. I think to have a change, we need new platforms, right? That sort of built in inclusion, like from the product design and from the start. Right now we have Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. I think all of these platforms are so mature in a way that it's really hard to like, correct some of that type of stuff. And then, of course, you have the managers and agents and all of that. And the tech, I mean, the Silicon Valley people coming into this industry in the past year, it's it's been really disappointing because you'll see them, I mean, just the way that they talk about creators, right? There's that other viral tweet that's like, creator economy people be like, Mr. Beast something, something Dobrik. And it's basically like a play on the fact that like these tech people know two content creators and they're both these horribly, you know, like white men, Mr. Beast and David Dobrik, both of whom have been involved in very controversial stuff. And that's who's getting the funding, right? Those are the people that are getting the monetization options early. It's not like you mentioned the sex workers. It's not marginalized communities. Or there's like, oh, look, we have this token black person in our campaign or we have a token woman, but they're not really like brought in in the same way. So I don't know. I feel like we're going to need a new class of people in Silicon Valley building new, platforms. Or if you talk to crypto people, of course, they'll say like blockchain solves this or whatever. Crypto solves this. Okay. I'm
1: really glad that you brought up crypto because (laughs) my next question is basically like... I remember this story you wrote a couple months ago about how there's all these startups now that aim to help creators, like, make money off of ever more minuscule parts of themselves. You know, we're starting a human stock market, or you can sell, like, personalized crypto coins. Like, I can have a Becca coin. You can have a Taylor coin. As if these are sort of going to solve the problem of the creator middle class. I mean, are any of these kind of startups' idea, do they excite you at
0: all? (laughs) I mean— I'm excited as a journalist to write about them because they're so crazy. That story actually, <laughs> I decided to write that story after three people in one week pitched me on a human stock market. And I was like, guys, what? Why do we need this? I mean It's like
1: they watched one episode of Black Mirror and they were like, I have an idea for a startup. <laughs> yes.
0: And then the VCs are like, ooh, money. I just I don't know. I think it goes back to like funding and building a more inclusive environment like from the ground up. Anil Dash, he's very critical of like NFTs and the crypto space. And I'm I don't agree with everything he says, but I think he's right in the sense that like right now, if you look at a lot of that world, the people that are profiting and once again that are the top dogs are same 10 VCs that profited off this first boom, right? And all of those people like have a horrible track record on equality and including women, people of color, things like that. So it is worrying. I do think though, there's a lot of opportunity for new platforms to be built. And those platforms can be hopefully a little bit more equitable and a little bit more stable. It's the instability, like, I mean, even Substack, I mean, I know that they get a lot of flack online, but to be fair, Substack is a lot better than because it's just a straight subscription revenue platform, right? Like in a lot of ways that is better. I know that people say, oh, it is really incentivized by Twitter traffic and stuff like that. But if you look at it as a whole, like subscription models are more sustainable than advertising models in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. These are all things that like big media companies, I feel like learned, but we're seeing like all these individual people kind of like learn now and have to figure it out.
1: Yeah, because we all have to think of ourselves as individual media companies. It's very stressful. (laughs) And one thing I think about a lot is like, if we have to create a human stock market to get paid for our work as creative people, is this just a bubble? Like, is this based on anything?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. People actually have been, people have been asking me if this is a bubble, I think, since I started writing about it. And it's a good question because so much of it seems unsustainable. I don't think it's a bubble. And I don't think it's a bubble because if you look back at this shift in media and consumption, like these are changes that have been happening for a really long time. I mean, since the birth of the internet, right? So I don't think that the trend of people building businesses on the internet and building these little media companies and consumers getting more entertainment from influencers essentially is a bubble. But I do think that we might be in a little bit of a creator economy startup bubble in the sense that VCs who all kind of just discovered this industry in the last nine months are just funding anything with the word creator in it. Yeah. Um, I mean, Becca, you might feel this way too. It just reminds me a lot of the digital media bubble in the early 2010s. Yeah.
1: Like, okay, if you're a tech guy who's like, I'm going to create a news site for millennials. and
0: <laughs> It was like, okay, have $3 trillion. <laughs> Yeah, I worked at one of those, RIP. <laughs> and I mean, look, like some digital media companies, obviously Vox included, are around <laughs> and are doing great and are, Shout are out sustained it, right? <laughs> but there's a lot of, I guess, you know, bodies along the way that, that didn't. And I think that's true with the creator world too. I mean, this is a huge shift. It's a big disruption in entertainment, in media, in startup world, but I don't, you know, probably a lot of these companies are not going to make it. And a lot of these creators are not going to make it.
1: Yeah. It just seems like there's like so much hype around, you know, like clubhouse and dispo and all these words that we don't hear anymore because it was such a flash in the pan. But I think like something happened after TikTok really took off where like people were just waiting for the next TikTok and they wanted to be first to it.
0: Okay. So people, all of these tech men had really started to rest on their laurels. And there was this notion (laughs) that like no company could ever compete with Facebook. And this was an inherently niche market. That's what they used to tell everyone, niche market, niche market. And then I think TikTok really put them on notice. And suddenly they're like, Oh, wait. Like we have to innovate. This is actually a big space. And that's great. And you know what? No hate to the investors. That's what they do. And they play a very vital role in this whole like ecosystem. But we're definitely in that phase of it right now, which is it's sort of the peak of the hype world.
1: Writing about internet culture on the internet is weird because we sort of have a role in perpetuating the things that we see online. Like uh, one of my like favorite things to talk about is how like there are so many articles that are like, X thing is big on TikTok right now, but it's like a thousand things are big on TikTok right now. Like you're the one deciding what you're going to write about. <laughs> and so I guess for someone who's obviously very visible in this field, like how do you approach playing a role in the story or being the story versus covering it?
0: Well, I mean, I don't think something as big is like ever a story that I would cover like myself. I also have the luxury of working at The Times. So we have like a sort of a trending team that, does different stuff. The way that I think about it is like, what does this say, right? I'm sure you do too. I think like to be a good reporter in this space, you need to think of like, hey, this is big and why is it big and why does it matter, right? Like why should we pay attention or why is this indicative of something? But what does this say about the internet or society or culture or whatever? I mean, can we talk about Chugi? Yes. Oh my God, (laughs) speaking of, I thought that was such a funny, well, I was really intrigued by that video because the girl was wearing a University of Colorado shirt (laughs) Go Buffs.
1: (laughs) Okay, TikTok, I have a new word for you that my friends and I use that you clearly are all in need of. The word, my friends, is chuggy, okay? It's the opposite of trendy, stylish in middle school and high school, maybe, maybe not. Timelines don't really matter, but it's no longer in style. It's used when someone follows these out-of-date trends or something falls into that category. Some examples... First of all, graphic tees and hats, phrases on clothing, Herbal Herbalescence shampoo, Chugi, the word you never knew you needed.
0: So I was like, oh, that's funny because the video, she was proposing it as a word. She never said, hey, this is a megaviral word that everyone's using. She yeah. was like, hey, guys, I have this word that my small group of friends and I used to articulate this specific thing. That's what made it interesting to me. Okay, so for some background to you, Vox listener, the
1: word chuggy, spelled C-H-E-U-G-Y, is a term that one girl on TikTok, she was talking about like her summer camp friends and the this word that they used to use to describe sort of like a basic fashion item or, you know, like pumpkin spice latte, chuggy. That's like the worst example possible, but like you understand. It's like corny. <laughs> like, yeah, it's corny. It's cheesy. It's passe. It's whatever. And I remember seeing that video and being like, I bet if this goes viral, because when I said, I don't know, it was like semi-viral on TikTok, which doesn't really mean anything because, you know, a bajillion things are semi-viral on TikTok. And once you wrote about it, it was, you know, like the New York Times says Shugi. Okay. So there's this new term
0: that's been gaining popularity on social media among younger users, so much so that the New York Times even wrote about it and grabbed our attention. It's called Shugi. Shugi? Yeah. Shugi. Shugi. They said, what is Shugi? You know it when you see Who it. Who says it? Like, put it in a sentence for me. I
1: can't put it in a sentence for you yet. And what's funny, because that's not what your story was trying to do. Your story was like, this is like a funny thing that now there have been articles written about it. But like, as soon as you wrote that, I was asked to go on TV to talk about what that was. Because
0: it was like, the New York <laughs> Times talked about it. So I, I'm
1: interested in like, how did that feel? I mean...
0: <laughs> Well, it reminds me a lot of, like, OK Boomer um mm-hmm. hype, which, like, Rosenblatt and Rosenblatt uh, at NBC had also written about it. I-, I think that the reason that the New York Times plays a role in that is because, one, a lot of boomers do read the New York Times. And two, it's seen as this, like, legacy institution that has a history of, like— kind of playing this role in culture. So I personally, like that means that one, I'm pretty careful about not just like writing up every random thing because then you seem stupid. And then I really, really took time to try to write it in a way being like, guys, this is what this is, and this is why it's interesting, and this is what it articulates, this is what it doesn't articulate, and not be like, this is what every Zoomer is using because that wasn't accurate. But now we have, like, ads saying banks are chuggy and stuff for Chase Bank. And.
1: Right. It's so weird. And how everyone wanted that to be a story about Gen Z hating on millennials. And it literally wasn't what it
0: was it literally wasn't. All. Oh, my God. Becca. Yeah.
1: And, I mean, that's another personal bugaboo of mine. Like, this fake generational war that I guess gets clicks or something. Like, I don't know why people
0: keep pushing it. It just gets clicked by Boomer. It's old people yeah. that want it to be a thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. my God. I wanted to do an entire story, and I actually spent four days— Interviewing famous hairstylist people about the middle part and how actually the peak middle part was really like 2016, oh like God, yeah. all of these like influencer hair. And anyway, Matters, like, this is just like a crusade that you're on because I've had a middle part for so long. And I'm like, this is not like some. Same. Youthful- I, I mean, I have Bangs. I always
1: have a middle part that that'd be like, i look like I was from like 1982
0: if I did like a side part with bangs. People just <laughs> want those narratives because they're easy. And yes.
1: And if you want the Gen Z versus millennial article, you can click on literally every website on the internet. Like there's enough of those. Yeah. All right. We're going to take one more short break and then we'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Taylor Lorenz. yourself, you have a TikTok, you have obviously a massive Twitter presence, you have a big Instagram following, like, where do you draw the line between journalist and creator? Or
0: is there one? Somebody asked me that a while ago, and then they were really being so hostile to me. This is a tangent. I'm not going to go down. Um,
1: (laughs) No, I want to (laughs) know. Well, but this is honestly something like this is a thing that journalists everywhere are currently dealing with because, yeah.
0: First of all, let's talk about the fact that journalists have always been public figures. I mean, look at like Diane Sawyer or Katie Couric or someone. Like the idea that journalists are somehow like squirreled away in a corner. Like that's just not true. Like Anderson Cooper, right? Like these journalists have been public figures for a long time. Obviously I'm not on their level, but like I think that like in media, especially coming up in digital media, like you've always had to be out there. Yeah. Um, I think the monetization thing is like sometimes more of a sticking point. Like, mm-hmm. are you an independent? Like if I was like monetizing solely through Twitter tips or something, like, okay, I could maybe I'm more of a content creator, but I also just think, like, look at these individual-driven media companies. Look at someone like Andrew Callahan, for instance, from Channel 5, which is, like, one of my favorite media startups. <laughs> I love startups. him. Like, I, I love him. Channel 5 News. <laughs> breaking news. Breaking news. You're watching Channel 5 with Andrew Callahan. We're here in Salt Lake City at the uh, Hive Music Festival. We've got wildfire smoke in the air. we got Delta in the building. The baby's not performing. And also, It's just this, like, news. kid that is... I say kid, I think he's like 22, you know, it's like they're doing journalism and it's very like Vice News, you know, Mm -hmm. from 2007, but kind of like on YouTube and monetizing like creators, but very much doing reporting. Like for people that don't know, Channel 5 is this YouTube channel that's like this news channel where the host, Andrew Callahan, goes and investigates all of these insane corners of America and... It's very much journalism, right? But he's monetizing as a content creator. And that just goes back to, like, content creators being media companies. These people are running media companies. Some media companies are more journalistic than others, just the way that some traditional media companies are more journalistic than others, you know? Yeah.
1: And, I mean, like, your own audience size has, like, contributed in making you this target for mass harassment, most notably by Tucker Carlson.
0: Now, we told you about Taylor Lorenz last night in a segment about how the most privileged in our society now consider themselves oppressed. And Taylor Lorenz is certainly a shining example of that principle. A New York Times reporter from Greenwich telling you what a victim she is. We were embarrassed for Taylor Lorenz. She spends her entire life on the Internet. So, of course, after a while, you become a deeply unhappy narcissist. That's what the Internet does to people.
1: But, I mean, it's strange to me the way that you've sort of been swept up in the culture war for someone who writes about tech and culture, like, what is there to be so mad about, you think?
0: Oh, my God. Good question, right? (laughs) I think that, like, (laughs) well, there's many reasons. But I think, I mean, one, I'm the most prominent. Like, I've been on this beat for the longest. In a lot of ways, I'm, like, older than the other people on this beat. And I think that makes me a target in the sense that I have more authority. Like, I think they do actually look stupid coming after, like, a 22 year old at a smaller website. Like they're just not going to do that. Whereas I have a relatively like higher position in terms of being at the New York times. So everyone just loves to attack the New York times. And I think these issues around like tech and influence and online influence, online influence is exactly what the worst bad faith actors in America like want to exploit. And they don't want people reporting on it. they certainly don't want people digging into the monetization stuff. I'm just thinking about, you know, after the capital insurrection, I did a story on all of the live streamers, you know, monetizing on DLive and then the capital insurrection, the merch that was being sold and all of these influencer marketing strategies and how they're being leveraged by these far right extremists. And I personally, I mean, I covered politics for two years. I like my beat now because I feel like these are the shifts that, like everything I write about, I write about sort of the more mainstream element and then it's like, oh, great, this will be taken to the worst extreme. And I think that it's that worst extreme, like those people on the internet just always want to be bad. Also, they hate women. They fundamentally do. And I mean, I have a lot of privilege being a gorgeous, beautiful, you know, white woman, but (laughs) like (laughs) there's, I don't know, there's a lot of miserable people online. And I don't care about like, you know, I've pissed off like every YouTuber fandom ever. And I don't really care about like death threats or people being mean. It's more the like smear campaigns and like, calling me a child rapist all the time. That's annoying. Yeah, they always go to that one. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But um I think that a lot of the like influencer content creator world, like again, we're seeing this this shift in media and a lot of people don't they have a very vested interest in not having that reported on and and having their structures of power, especially tech, right? I mean, most of the people that hate me are Silicon Valley people and They want those structures of power to remain intact. Just the way a lot of bankers hate certain finance reporters, you know. They don't want their stuff exposed. That makes
1: a lot of sense. I mean, I kind of want to wrap up, like, your just general take on all of it. I think, like, whenever I talk to people about the creator economy, there's so many people that fall into, like, this is the future. This is how we sort of beat the institutions and the institutional power. Like, anyone can get famous and be an influencer. And then you have people more like me who, who are like, uh, the idea of every single person being a creator on their own island fighting for money and attention scares the hell out of me. I mean, where do you land? What do you want to say to either of those people?
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm an optimist about technology. Like, I do think that we can have a better world through technology and, like, that ideally, in its best form, like, all of these tech shifts could be used to really liberate people from miserable situations, including, like, employment, right? The problem is is that it's just, like, currently we're in this, like, capitalist hellscape where, like you mentioned, it's really bad and it's hard. I think the people that are like, oh, this is just going to be hell, it's like, well, I don't blame them for thinking that because that's the way we're going. But I guess I'm kind of in the middle in the sense that I'm like, yeah, I know we're like going in a really bad way, but I'm kind of like, it has to get better. Like people have to (laughs) change. But I think like, I'm sure you feel this too, Rebecca, like the first step to changing these systems and making a more equitable system and making a fairer internet and a better internet for everyone is like, Really helping people understand how it works and like helping people understand how the content creator world works and like helping people understand how these tech platforms operate. Like, that's really important. If people don't understand that, they're just going to dismiss it. Mm-hmm. And we're going to go further down this path. So it's like people have to kind of recognize how hard it is, recognize how volatile it is, and recognize the benefits of it too. And hopefully take the good without the bad, but sometimes take good with a little bad, right? Like, I don't know. Everyone has to sort of get on board. It's slightly terrifying every time like some tech person goes in front of Congress and you realize like how ignorant a lot of people are about this world. And so I just hope people pay more attention to this. You know, maybe they read more articles about it. Maybe they think a little bit more critically. Maybe they're less dismissive of the quote unquote creator economy and think like, huh, maybe this is something we should pay attention to. It's multi-billion dollar industry and clearly not going away.
1: I love that we ended on an advertisement for this episode, how people should just listen (laughs) to us talk all the time and read more of your work. Thank you so much. This was so great. Taylor Lorenz, she is a tech reporter for the New York Times. We are so lucky to have her. Thank you so much. Thank you for
0: having me. Vox
1: Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdovska. Paul Robert Mounsey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. Thanks to Victoria Dominguez, the Vox Audio Fellow, for her help on this episode. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. Send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us next week for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.